as, uh, as Mike said, here we are again. Um, let me just say, I, uh, I love emails. <laughs> um, just so you guys know, and you know, it's a hard time to lead right now. It's a hard time to make decisions. There's a lot of things that can divide us. Um, let's just not split over masks, okay? Uh, the elders are gathering again on Thursday, or Tuesday of this week to kind of put our heads together and see if we can come up with some creative solutions. I think there's some opportunities. If you're really upset about this, vote. Consider running for local office. We can see how these things matter. Um, they do. And uh, here's the thing about submission. It's hardest when you don't agree. Right? It's not, it's not hard to submit to someone that you fully agree with. Right? Submission to govern and ath- governing authorities, there's a limit to that. How that all applies in this situation, guys, I'm not exactly sure. I know they're not telling me I can't preach the gospel. I know they're not telling us that we can't gather. Those are pretty big things. Um, I was struck this week, and this is, this is not even the sermon. You're just getting this for free. <laughs> I was struck this week by the end of Matthew chapter 17. You're like, that. I'm, I'm struggling to see the connection. Uh, a bunch of people come up to Peter and they say, does your, does your teacher, does your master pay the temple tax? And he says, yes. And then he and Jesus meet up late, uh, a little bit later and Jesus is like, hey, buddy, who do you think the temple tax is for? Uh, is it for the son or is it for everybody else? And he goes, ah, it's for everybody else. So in many ways, the son is exempt, right? Yeah. But I tell you what, Peter, I want you to go fishing. And the first fish that you pull up inside is going to be uh, a couple gold coins. And I want you to go and I want you to pay the tax for me and for you so as to not cause offense. Now, I've just been thinking about that. And like here Jesus says, hey, this is silly. But to not cause offense, he actually works a miracle and says, Peter, just go do it. Why don't you think on that a little bit? Here's the thing, like, not everybody wants to follow the speed limit. I don't know about you, I don't like paying taxes. Anybody think their taxes are too high? Yeah, yeah, right? And yet, there's part of living in an ordered society where we sometimes have to do things that we don't like. And here's the cool thing. We live in a place where if we don't like it, we can actually run for office and change it. Uh, we actually have a voice that does certain things. And so um, as much as we, 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 try, we say that, hey, politics aren't the main thing, God might be calling some of you guys into local politics. And that's a great place to serve. And we would love it if you would do that. That's all I'll say on that matter. <laughs> we are beginning a sermon series called The Thread, which is a study in a chapter of each book of the Bible, a 66-week series. But today, my goal is to kind of give you a framework for the Bible as a whole. And so we're going to go through the entire storyline of Scripture today. I'm going to pray, and then I've got just an introductory video that is incredibly powerful that I think 
uh, you'll be inspired by. So let, let me pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to open up your word. And Holy Spirit, we just invite you to speak to us. Speak to us wherever we're at, but God, would you help us to see your unfolding story, that we might see our story in the middle of it? And so God, would you help me today uh, to delight in your word and to communicate it accurately? So Holy Spirit, would you speak to every single person here? Would you speak to every single person watching online? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative in which every story, every character points beyond itself to one who is greater. The story of Adam and Eve is not just about the first man and woman. There is a true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is ascribed to us. There is a true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. There is a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. There is a true and better Isaac the son of laughter, of grace, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. There is a true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. There is a true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. There is a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. There is a true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. There is a true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his foolish friends. There is a true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. There is a true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. There is a true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. There is a true and better Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative that points to one person, Jesus. Amen. The Bible is an amazing book. 
See, in one sermon, I can get you a handle on its basic overview and and message, but then at the same time, you could devote the rest of your life to studying it and never fully plumb the depth of its insight and its wisdom for your life. The Bible is composed of 66 different individual books that are written by over 40 different authors over the course of about 1,500 years. From the time of Moses, who penned the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, around 1400 or so B.C., to the time of Jesus' apostles in first century A.D., the Bible is composed of various different genres of literature, from historical narrative to law to poetry to prophecy to personal and corporate letters to even a foreign and strange genre that we know as of apocalyptic literature, using rich symbolic language to sell us something about God in the future. See, these different authors and these various genres all weave together to tell a beautiful overarching story that helps us derive meaning and purpose for the world. But more than that, it helps us to see that our stories, our lives, actually fit within the narrative of God's overarching story. And so when we think about the Bible, it's not tell me the old, old story, but rather help me to see my story within the overarching story of God, where you and I are relatively small characters and yet still filled with significance and meaning in purpose, moving the course of history forward. See, this unique story begins in the book of Genesis with God speaking the world into being, creating mankind, a unique image bearer of God, and placing him within, within a beautiful garden that was created for him. And to this man, he gives a task to rule over and steward the creation that God had made and make the rest of the creation like the garden. See, in this garden, mankind dwells with his God and relates to him by faith in his word, faith in his command, primarily by enjoying the good thing that God had made, which was God's first command, freely eat, but then also by not not eating of a certain tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, when Adam and Eve decide that God is not good and not to be trusted, they decide to eat from this tree that God had forbidden, believing that they should be the ones that determine good and evil for themselves, not an overarching or oppressive God. Because of this, mankind is exiled from the garden with God exiled from the presence of God and forced to live in a world that has been tainted and damaged and broken by this sin. That's Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Now the rest of the story of the Bible answers this unique question. How can things be made right? How can things be restored to what they were? You see, every single worldview that exists out there has to answer three questions. How did we get here? What went wrong, and how can things be made right? Every, every understanding of the world has to answer those three questions. How we got here, what went wrong, and I think we all agree, there's things that are wrong. And then third, can things be made right? Or what is meaning and purpose, really? 
And then this story that begins so promisingly but doesn't last very long in a promising state concludes in Revelation 21 and 22 with God once again dwelling with man. Heaven now comes down to the earth and it's pictured for us as a glorious city, the new Jerusalem. And get this, inside the city where God dwells with his people is a garden. And in that garden is a tree the tree of life, and God gives a command about that tree, and he says, freely eat. See, the story of the Bible is not primarily a told with a Western story framework, which is beginning, middle, end, and they lived happily ever after. It goes something like this, as a, as a Semitic story, beginning, middle, new beginning. Isn't that amazing? That it it begins with God and his people dwelling there in a garden and a tree and it ends with God's people dwelling with them in a city with a garden with a tree with all things restored. And so between Genesis chapter 3 and Revelation 21 is the story of God making and keeping his promises to make things right. And we see over and over again God making promises but mankind rebelling. And God, in an inexplicable way, pursuing, showing gracious love, steadfast love for his people, despite their rebellion against him. If you were to open your Bible to the table of contents, you would see something like this. Our Bibles are arranged not primarily in chronological order, but rather by genre. You would see the Old Testament. And the first five books of the Bible are known as the Law, or the Torah, or the Pentateuch. These are the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The ones everybody who began a Bible reading plan has started and stalled out, at least in Leviticus. But these are the books of Moses telling the Jewish people their beginnings, their lineage, and then ultimately what God requires of them through the law, how to live as God's people in this broken and tainted world. The next 12 books from Joshua, the book of Joshua to the book of Esther, are the books of history, telling mostly in chronological order the history of the Jewish nation from the time that they took possession of the land that God had promised them in Canaan through their exile and then their return to the land until the year about 400 before the coming of, of Jesus. And the next selection of books are, are, are the writings or the book of wisdom, Book of Wisdom, uh, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. If you, if you were to start there, you would realize that this reads very differently than the, than the previous book. No longer are we simply looking at history and God's interaction with people, but, that, but rather these are books of songs and poems and pithy proverbs that help people make sense of the world and live in a wise way before God. How can I live a life that is good and rooted and righteous and brings about blessing? And the last 17 books in the Old Testament are known as the prophets. Sometimes these are split up into two different categories. The major prophets, which are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. And you know why they're called major prophets? It's because they're long. There you have it. And then there's the the 12 or the the minor prophets. And so you're like, could we get a minor preacher, not a major preacher today? (laughs) Wait, we got the whole Bible to cover, okay? 
And hidden in the book of the prophets is the book Lamentations, which isn't actually a book of prophecy, but rather fits better in the writings or the wisdom literature. It's a lament. It's, a, it's songs of grief and, and mourning over the fall of Jerusalem. And the reason that it's included in the prophets, at least in our Bible, is because it was written by Jeremiah, and so it's tucked close to the book of Jeremiah. And that At the end of the 12, these shorter books of prophecy is the last book, Malachi, which is the last prophet chronologically. You see, if you were to go to the prophets, you would see that they actually fit in in the various books of history at different places and at different stages chronologically. They're not told in, in, in order, so to speak, but rather they fit within the context of Israel's history. Typically, they are calling the people of God to repent of their sin, to follow Yahweh and covenant faithfulness, which means obeying the law or the sacrificial system or, or making sure that God is a priority. And often they speak of promises about the future Messiah or deliverer and what God will ultimately do for his people. At the end of that is Malachi, the last prophet chronologically, who predicts the coming of, of, of a crier in the wilderness who will prepare the way of the Lord. And at the, after Malachi, you get 400 years of silence. Did you know that in the biblical story? The people are, are back from exile. They are rebuilding the, the city of Jerusalem. They are rebuilding the temple. And then nothing They don't hear a prophetic word from God until 400 years later when an angel breaks the silence with good news. And we hear the special cry of a baby who is actually God entering our world himself. And then we have the New Testament. The New Testament, or the remaining 27 books, is actually only about a quarter of the Bible in terms of actual volume or length. The 27 books of the New Testament are broken up this way. There are the the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are four independent accounts of the life and teaching and miraculous signs and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Written by Matthew, by Mark, by Luke, by John. Four independent collaborating accounts that help us to know with pretty good certainty some of the things that Jesus said and did and why he did them. And then you have next the book of Acts, which tells the story of Jesus' followers after his resurrection and ascension uh, for about the first 30 years or so. It's actually the second volume of a two-part work that starts with the Gospel of Luke and then continues on through the book of Acts. And then you have the various writings or epistles that are written to the New Testament churches or to different individuals. You have Romans through Philemon, and the reason that those are listed first is because the Apostle Paul wrote them. Now, does anybody know why the particular writings of Paul are given in the order that they were? Are they chronological? Are they in order of importance? Oh, it's way more scientific than that, let me tell you. They're in order of length. (laughs) Romans is the longest, so it goes first. Philemon is the shortest, so it goes last. And the only exception to that are the, like the first and second Corinthians and first and second Timothy or first and second Thessalonians. Those kind of go together because it's writing to the same person or to the same church. And then we have Hebrews. And we don't know who wrote that book, but we are blessed by it. And it gives us an incredible grasp of the Old Testament and what it means and what it was pointing to. Then we have a, a, letter, a letter written by James, who was the half-brother of Jesus and the leader of the Jerusalem church. And then we have First and Second Peter that are written by 
oh, you guys are with me. Anybody falling asleep yet, or is this interesting? Yeah, okay, we're having Bible class today. It's a little bit different, but let me tell you, there's a payoff. When we see how it fits together and it weaves together, it's incredible, it's worshipful. And then we have 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Guess who they're written by? Oh, you guys are smart. Short letters written by John, and then Jude, who is most likely another half-brother of Jesus, who writes a short one-chapter letter to a bunch of people. And then finally, the New Testament closes with a weird, albeit fascinating, book called Revelation, a book of apocalyptic literature, literature given by the Apostle John, meant to encourage God's people to stand in the midst of persecution with an eye toward the return of Jesus Christ and the full consummation of God's kingdom that is yet to come but will happen. This, t- this book tells us how the story is going to end, or rather, how the story is going to begin anew. And there you have it. The Bible. 66 different books, multiple genres, different authors, different personalities and ways of writing. And yet behind all of these human authors, with their various circumstances and different voices, you have one author, a divine author speaking. In fact, Paul, writing to his, uh, the, the, one of his protégés or, or met the people, people that he mentors, Timothy, says this about the scriptures in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Meaning that the Bible is primarily written by God. That behind all of the human authors is a divine author that is revealing himself to us through these unique voices. And that all of these different voices, these things that have been written down, are actually helpful for us. They are helpful to teach us and help us to understand the truth and what God requires of us. They are helpful for reproof or rebuke or correction, meaning that every single one of us from time to time has wrong thinking. We don't understand fully, and the Bible provokes us and corrects us and rebukes us and says, sometimes, you're wrong. It does which actually should encourage us that it is divine in its origin. Because if the Bible always agreed with us in everything, my guess is we wouldn't be worshiping God, but rather a figment of our own imagination. We'd actually be worshiping ourselves, wouldn't we? Think about that for a little bit. In fact, every year or so, the culture changes a little bit, and then there's something in the Bible that didn't used to be offensive, but now we find offensive, and, and we're aghast, and we wonder, do we need to change with the times? Do we need to adapt to the culture as it now is, now that we see things more clearly? Or do we just acknowledge that every single culture is going to say some things that are in line with God's word and wisdom and that are plain to see, and every single culture in the world is going to be provoked and offended by something. That rather than calling into question whether or not the Bible is actually from God, maybe that actually becomes a proof that it is. And that none of us have a full corner on the market and we need to be provoked and challenged from time to time. See, the, the crazy thing is the things that we find offensive, if you were to go to a different part of the world, they would find those things really easy to receive. The things that we find really easy to receive, if you were to go to different parts in the world, they would find those incredibly offensive. 
which should make us think that the Bible is not only divine in its origin, but it's profitable for teaching, for correction, and for reproof, and also for training in righteousness. That if we want to live a life that actually reflects God's character, a life of shalom and righteousness, that we ought to be instructed and shaped and formed by God's word. Not only does the Bible say this about himself, but Peter adds his voice in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says this, Because of this experience, that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. So he's referring back to the Old Testament scriptures. You must pay close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and, the, and Christ the morning star shines in your hearts. So the prophets turn on the lights so that we can see clearly. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came about from a prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, these prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit, and they spoke from God. What he's saying is that even the prophets didn't know fully what they were writing about or speaking about and how it fully connected within the whole story of God. They didn't know, but God did and used their unique contribution to weave together a beautiful tapestry, a story that connects the dots for us, a story that gives meaning and purpose to our story that we still find ourselves in. Now let me give you five words to kind of give a helpful framework for the biblical story. They're this, creation, fall, futility, redemption, and restoration. If you want to know the overarching story arc of the Bible, creation, Fall, futility, redemption, and restoration. Let me just kind of explain those as we go. Creation. How did we get here? God created the world and everything in it by the profound power of his word. He declared creation and everything in it very good. He created one creature uniquely to bear his image and rule over the world under his reign. That creature was mankind. The first man, Adam, was given the task of filling the earth with the glory of God by filling the earth with God's image bearers. And he and his wife Eve, as he and his wife Eve obeyed the word of God, they would serve as an extension of God's powerful and loving rule. Adam and Eve had perfect fellowship with God, with each other, and with the rest of creation. All this is summed up by the Hebrew word shalom, peace, rightness, and this was very good, but it didn't last long. So the, the, the beginning of the world, the way that we understand the, the start of the story is that God creates and he creates good. Often when we share the gospel, we start with sin. We start with the bad news, but do you notice that the Bible doesn't start there? In fact, we can't really even fully get our mind around what sin is apart from the goodness of what God has made and how that mars and distorts all of life, how it wrecks it, it taints it. And so the second thing that we tell in the biblical story is the fall. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve reject the voice of God and the commands of God to choose, and they choose to obey another voice, the voice of the serpent. In an effort to rule themselves, they choose slavery, not to a good and all-powerful God, but to an evil master. This act of rebellion and sin brings about the brokenness, brings about brokenness in everything in creation. Rather than being at peace with God and with ourselves, and with one another, and with the rest of creation. Those relationships are now marked by brokenness and frustration and a lack of peace. Shalom 
is lost. But even in the midst of God's judgment falling on Adam and Eve, as they were banished from the presence of God's blessing, we see that God shows incredible mercy and makes a profound promise all the way back in Genesis 3. He allows his justice to fall on an animal rather than immediately on Adam and Eve. He himself clothes them with animal skins, foreshadowing a sacrifice that was to come, and then promises to send a deliverer one day that would crush the head of the serpent, but in doing so, the deliverer would be injured as well. Let me show you that in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, God is speaking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. So God is going to call out a people for himself. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Or he shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so this deliverer is going to come and put an end to the serpent, but in doing so, he will be wounded himself. Sound familiar? The third wave is actually probably the longest in terms of sheer volume in the Bible. It's futility. A lot of times people will say the, the way to tell the biblical story is creation, fall, redemption, restoration. But, but, but when you do that, you actually skip the majority of the Bible. The lessons that we learn of the futility of living our life, trying to save ourselves, trying to obey God ourselves. The majority of the Old Testament shows the futility of living apart from God. No matter how much God spoke into or rescued his people, they continued to sin and to rebel against him. In the midst of this rebellion against God, God shows his mercy by making promises called covenants to Noah and Abraham and David that he will rescue and restore his people who have rejected them. And each of the promises gives a clearer and clearer picture of how he will do that. Though things were broken, he he promises to come and make a way back. In fact, in Genesis chapter 12, God appears to a man named Abraham and makes him a promise. And we're actually going to look at this promise next week as we look at the book of Genesis. But the promise that God makes to Abraham is that I will bless you with numerous descendants and a land. I will bless you and through you I will bless all of the other peoples or families of the earth. And so did you know that from Genesis chapter 12 on, the Bible deals primarily with God revealing himself to one family and how that family or that people, that nation, that ethnic group is going to be a blessing to all of the other nations of the earth. God primarily interacts with Abraham and his descendants. One of the things that he does is he graciously gives, him his, gives them his law through Moses, known as the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, As those rescued by God out of slavery in Egypt, given his law and the promised land, they were then to display display to a watching world what life is like under the rule and the reign of God. They were to be a light to the nations, showing them the blessing of living under God's rule. During this time, God also established the sacrificial system, which was a means by which Israel could atone for their sins and still dwell in the midst of a holy God by offering a sacrifice in their place. Israel failed miserably at this. Miserably. At keeping the law. Instead, as we read the story, we see the futility of them continually giving themselves over to worship other gods. Throughout the history of Israel, God raises up kings and prophets and priests to serve and rescue the people of God. Prophets spoke God's word to his people along with his promises. Kings were to serve as rulers and deliverers for the people. And priests functioned as intercessors of the people between them and God. 
They mediated the presence of God. Each of these roles was fulfilled by a sinful or broken or less than type of man, continually pointing the need for a greater king, for a greater prophet, or for a greater priest. And when Jesus comes, he fulfills all of these things, which gets us to the fourth movement, redemption. So creation, fall, futility, redemption. As man in and of themselves had no power to save himself, God the Father, out of his love, sends Jesus to bring salvation to a sinful people. This deliverer named Jesus would be a man, but he would be more than a man. He would be God himself. Through Jesus' life, we see the kingdom of God breaking back into the kingdom of darkness as Jesus shows his authority in every realm over sickness, over disease, over nature, over demons, over Satan, over sin, and through the resurrection over even death itself. We see the full extent of God's heart for his people through the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus, this deliverer on the cross. See, Jesus, the perfect and the sinless one, was treated like an enemy so that we as enemies could be treated like sons and daughters. In this, God provides atonement for his people and fulfills the sacrificial system through Jesus' perfect and final sacrifice on the cross. Through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we see God's victory over Satan's sin and even death itself, which leads then to a longing for restoration. We would expect Jesus upon resurrection to stay and fully inaugurate the kingdom of God after his resurrection, but he doesn't. In a stunning move, he ascends to heaven with the promise, I'm coming back soon. And then he pours out his Holy Spirit on his followers, uniting them by grace through faith to himself. Jesus calls then his his people to be witnesses of this good news of salvation through his work, his life, death, and resurrection. He tells his people to make disciples of all of the nations, teaching them to believe this good news and to observe all of the commandments that he had given. That they are to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he promises one day to return and bring a final restoration or resolution and salvation to all of his people and punish evildoers once and for all. And so, even though the decisive victory has been achieved through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, his reign, his rule is not fully inaugurated which is why we see glimpses of beauty and restoration, why we experience the the blessing of forgiveness and life with Christ now, and yet the world's still broken. It's not the way that it was supposed to be. His reign has not yet been fully inaugurated. Why? Because Jesus is waiting for all of those who will repent and believe the good news and find salvation in his name. He promises his, his delay is, is not driven by idleness, but rather by patience and by mercy. That maybe even today, someone in this room might repent and believe the good news of Jesus Christ and find salvation and forgiveness of sins. And so we live in this time, live in light of his redemption, and yet long for his return and the complete restoration of all things Living in light of his redemption means that we taste in some part his kingdom come. But we're still filled with an ache and a longing for things to be made right. That, my friends, is the story of the Bible. That's what the Bible is all about. Creation, fall, futility, redemption, and restoration. 
And we often do much harm to it when we reduce it to a spiritual encyclopedia of devotional thoughts. It is far more than that. But here's the thing. You can know all about how the Bible fits together and still miss the main point. Did you know that? The main point being Jesus himself. In fact, Jesus, when he was interacting with some of the Old Testament scholars and religious leaders of his day, says this to them in John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me, yet you refuse to come to me and receive this. Many of the religious leaders of Jesus' day had memorized the entire Old Testament, and Jesus says, you don't know your Bible. Because if you knew your Bible, you would see that it points to me. Now, that's either true or Jesus is so unbelievably arrogant that he should be dismissed. It's entirely possible for you to know about the Bible, but not know the Jesus that it points to. That should fill us with a sense of trepidation, shouldn't it? See, the Bible isn't primarily about you. It's about Jesus. Yes, it has profound implications on your life, but it isn't about you. It's about Jesus and his profound work of salvation for you and for others. Let me give you the key to understanding the whole Bible, and I already gave you the hint. It's about Jesus. There's a lot of spoilers in this message, including the video that you saw at the beginning. But in Luke chapter 24, as Jesus appears after his resurrection to his disciples, this is what happens. He says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are all witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. It says that Jesus says everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that's shorthand for the entire Old Testament, must be fulfilled. How is it fulfilled? It's fulfilled in these days. The interpretive key to understanding the entirety of the Bible is that we can only understand it in light of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and the salvation or forgiveness of sins is now proclaimed in his name. So, we're going to study the Bible. For the next 66 weeks, we have a long sermon series where we're going to be exposed to all different kinds of and, and genres in the Bible. And here, here are my three main goals for the series. That you would understand the Bible, that you would love the Bible, and that your life would be shaped by the Bible. See, understanding the Bible is the easiest part. A good teacher can help you see how it fits together. Maybe even some, some things have clicked in your mind today as you're like, oh, that's the overarching story. But to love the Bible, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. The spirit who opens our eyes to the beauty and the wonder of God. But I want you to be people that love the Bible. As Psalm chapter 1 challenges us, the blessed man is one who delights in God's word and meditates on it day and night. So from now on till the end of the school year, we're going to be looking through the Torah and the books of history. 
We'll take a break in the summer, and then we'll get back at it in the fall. It's a 66-week series looking at one or two chapters in each book and seeing how it points to Jesus and how it makes sense of the world. And in doing, I want us to be a people shaped by God's word more than we are shaped by our culture. I want to be a people that is shaped by God's word more than any political ideology. I want us to be people that are shaped by God's wisdom more than any self-help guru that comes along. But in doing this, what should, what should flow from our hearts is not just understanding, but worship. As we see all that God has done to reveal himself to us and to save us when we were least worthy of it. See, we are to worship the one who loved us and saved us and redeemed us and calls us to follow him and wholeheartedly. The greatest way for you to overcome sin and temptation in your life is not just with knowledge. It's not with willpower. It's with a superior delight. And my greatest hope is that I will point to him every single week as we go throughout the scriptures that you might see that Jesus is worthy of our worship. So next week, we're going to open up the book of Genesis, and I've already kind of hit home a lot of creation and fall today. We're going to look at Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, where God makes a promise to Abraham and to his descendants. And so here's my encouragement to you this week. I want you to read the whole book of Genesis. Some of you guys are like, that's 50 chapters. Yep, seven a day. Here's what I want you to do. Read it. Listen to it. Maybe download the version of the Bible app. You can listen in all kinds of different translations. Maybe just listen to it when you're driving in the car or where you're, when you're snowblowing your driveway or something like that. And get through the book of Genesis. See what God reveals at the very beginning. And, and maybe throughout the, 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 the year, whatever book that we're going to be in, you can read it that week. Meaning, this week's a lot of reading, but when we get to Nahum, that's not. You're like, what's a Nahum? It's a book in the Bible. The other thing that's going to happen is our city groups are going to be studying together Bible overviews of each book, looking at the, at the Bible project videos together and, and seeing how it all fits together and, and, and then probably reading the passage that I'm going to be preaching on or Mike's going to be preaching on the coming week and, and we get to do a little proactive work so that we know and understand God's word. There's also a tab on our website if you want to look at it that rockhillcc.org slash thread that has all of these resources that you can find. There's going to be a tab with resources. There's a tab to all the Bible Project videos. There's going to be two-minute overviews that we'll show at the beginning of the, ser the sermon that you can go and look at there. And any of the messages that you miss, you can go back and listen to them there. I'm excited for this journey because I want to be people that know the Word, love the Word, and are shaped by the Word. Let's pray. God, thank you for the story that you have unfolded from the very beginning of history. I thank you that, that our lives find meaning and purpose within your story. And so would you inspire us with that today? Would you encourage our hearts as we look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith? We ask in his name, amen. We're gonna transition in our worship service to a time of responding. And you're going to respond by singing your hearts out in worship to Jesus, by hearing about different ways that you can get connected, and by giving of your tithes and your offerings. But before we do any of that, we're going to 
pause and take communion together. We're going to look to the communion table, something that reminds us of what Jesus has done for us that we might never forget. Just like eating and drinking is something that we need to do every day in order to thrive physically, so the act of remembering the gospel nourishes and encourages us like food and drink do spiritually. And so we're going to remember Jesus' body broken for us, his blood shed for us, that that is the only grounds by which we are reconciled to God. It's not memorizing the Bible. It's not knowing the structure of every book and how it fits together. It's not even being shaped and formed. It's what Jesus has done for us, which, which is this. He came and he lived a perfect life in our place where we failed. And he, the perfect one, gave himself for us as a perfect sacrifice for sins. And he rose in victory over Satan, sin, and death. That if we put our faith and our trust in him, his life becomes our life. His death is a substitute sacrifice for our death. And his resurrection provides the ground of our hope and our future. If you have put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, I would invite you, welcome you to the table to remember his body broken and his blood shed for you. If you're here this morning and you're just exploring the Christian faith, I just want to let you know I'm really glad you're here. But please don't participate in something that isn't true about your life yet. If you have not put your faith in Jesus, then you are welcome here. But please don't come to the table. However, if you're here today and you realize, I need him. I want to put my faith in Jesus. Then I would invite you to do that by simply praying, confessing your sins, and believing in him, trusting in him today. And if that's you, then you're actually welcome at this table to remember for the first time in faith his body broken for you and his bloodshed. Let's pray. God, thank you for the communion meal which reminds us and encourages us of your great work of salvation. It also, God, reminds us of the unity that we have in you. And so would you nourish and encourage our faith now as we participate in Jesus' name, amen.